Good morning, friends. As you know, it's Palm Sunday, and I'll read that story in a minute, but I wanted to share with you a story from the life of Jesus that's really the threshold to the events of Palm Sunday, Holy Week, and Easter. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is the sign that Jesus did that actually got him killed. For the Sanhedrin who are in charge in Jerusalem, this is the last straw. So the raising of Lazarus from John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. So the sister sent a message to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When Jesus came to Mary, she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to Jesus, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how much he loved him. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to Jesus, Lord, already there is a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And when he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in another cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So from that day on, the Pharisees planned to put him to death. And then the story of the triumphal entry from the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. The next day, the great crowd that had come to attend the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, saying, Hosanna, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see, we can do nothing. The whole world has gone after him. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, what's the shortest sentence in the English language? There's actually some mild controversy between the only two obvious candidates. Personally, I think the shortest sentence in the English language is, Go. Others disagree with me by responding that a proper sentence in English always has a subject and a verb, so they say the shortest sentence in the English language is, I am. I respond to them by saying that when we use a, a verb in the imperative mood, we are implying a subject so that when we say go, we are really meaning you go. But either way, two letters or three, it turns out that English can be a remarkably efficient language. John 11 verse 35 comes close to the shortest sentence in the English language. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It's two words, nine letters, Jesus wept. 
Now, it was not St. John himself, of course, who set these words aside in their own discrete verse in this larger narrative. Chapter and verse references didn't come into our Bibles in any language until the 16th century, but Christendom has long admired the shrewdness of the guy who gave these two words and nine letters their very own verse in this larger story because he seems to have understood that these two words and nine letters give us a vivid snapshot of Jesus as he is in his distilled essence. When Jesus confronts the brutal fact of Lazarus's apparently irreversible deadness, he weeps. And then John piles up the verbiage to hammer home his humble homily. He tells us that Jesus was deeply moved and greatly disturbed But some English translators turn that word disturbed into angry. Jesus was angry. Jesus is mad as hell and he's not going to take it anymore. Jesus hates death. And this gospel means to tell us that a sturdy belief in the resurrection of the dead does not forestall forestall our tears, nor should it. This gospel permits, even commands us, to give public, physical, saline expression to our sadness. Now remember, this is the gospel that tells us in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. This is the gospel that tells us that Jesus of Nazareth is the definitive earthly manifestation of God, God's self. So this gospel is saying is that not not only is sadness quintessentially human, sadness is quintessentially divine. And now I'm going to reach into my cabinet of colloquial curiosities and snatch out another odd word. Like the other words we've looked at, this word too is both obsolete and virtually unpronounceable. So, it is almost obsolete and virtually unpronounceable, but it's not inscrutable. We can take it apart. We can know what this word means. The word is dolorifuge. And if you listen to it, you can tell that it's comprised of two Latin words. First, dolor, of course, which means sadness, and then fuge, which comes from the Latin verb fugera, which means to flee, as in a centrifuge, which means to flee from the center, or a refuge, which is something you flee back to, or a refugee, which is someone who flees. And so, a dolorifuge is anything that makes your grief fly away. A dolorifuge is anything that makes your fell foreboding flee far from you. And so this is a timely word on Palm Sunday, right? Because on Thursday and Friday next week, we will want to, some of us, walk with Jesus down his own Via Dolorosa, down his own sorrowful way. A bunch of you have literally walked the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem with its 14 stations of dolor. Maybe you've done this in a Roman Catholic cathedral. So a dolorifuge is anything that makes your grief fly away. And the first of all dolorifuges is just to admit and express and to own the things that make us sad. Because Lord knows, we've all got plenty to be sad about this past year, right? There's a wonderful article in the Times a couple of weeks ago about disenfranchised grief. Do you know what disenfranchised grief is? I didn't either until I read the article. Disenfranchised grief is grief that you don't think you deserve. 
It's grief that you don't think you have a right to because what you're sad about is too small compared to what others have suffered. And so when you speak to people like us, at least, in this past year, and you ask them, what have you lost this year? The first thing they'll say is, well, I'm one of the lucky ones. I can't complain. I'm counting my blessings. Those are actually all good responses. I've used them a hundred times myself. Because what have we lost, after all? Proms, graduations, weddings, funerals, the opera, hugging our grandchildren. Now what is that compared to those who have lost their lives or their loved ones or their health or their jobs? Not much, not much at all. And yet one woman said, but what is life after all if not a collection of small joys? Yes, what is life if not a collection of small joys? The gym, the cinema, the show, the restaurants, dinner with friends. Taken together, maybe our loss isn't so small after all. Now it's been a year, more than a year, and I still can't get used to Blur's Day. So I used to write my sermons on Saturday and preach them on Sunday, of course, but now I have to write my sermons on Friday because we record worship on Saturday. So I spend all day Friday working on my sermon, and on Friday night I'm on the couch watching television with my wife, and I turn to her and say, why isn't Saturday Night Live on? And she looks at me like I'm crazy, because I am, and she says, because it's Saturday Night Live, not Friday Night Live. Then on Saturday I come to church, and I record the worship service, which is worship for me. And then on Saturday night, I'm watching television with my wife, and I turn to her and say, why isn't 60 Minutes on? And she just gives, I've been doing this for a year. A young woman, Victoria, broke a record in the triple jump during her junior year at Pomona College. And she was so looking forward to her senior year because she thought she had a shot at a national title in the triple jump. But of course, that senior season never happened. And she says, there is no concrete way to mourn a lost track season. And even to speak that sentence sounds so stupid. But it was a big part of who I was, of who I am. We, have, we had such big dreams but see, here's the thing. It's not a competition. We're not in the Grief Olympics, right? So what if your sadnesses are smaller than somebody else? One Dolorefuge is to just admit what's happened to us this past year and to say that we're just a little diminished by these things, by these losses. Shouldn't be embarrassed by our sadness. You've heard this phrase, toxic positivity, right? Uh, a relentless cheerfulness that... It, sort of poisons the atmosphere a little bit. We need to be honest about our feelings. A broken heart itself is a dolorefuge, like that broken heart of Jesus next to Lazarus's grave. Jesus had his heart broken by the things that break the heart of God. Jesus hated death and went to war with it with a vengeance at Lazarus's tomb and a week later at his own. So do we have our hearts broken by the things that break the heart of God? Those 18 people who were killed this week in Atlanta and Boulder, it's just so wrenchingly sad. Terry Liker, that autistic clerk at King Supers who's been bagging groceries cheerfully there for 30 years she loved her job 
She had an autistic boyfriend who worked there too. He was there that day and survived. He will never replace Terry. She's irreplaceable. Lynn Murray died in Boulder that same day. Her disconsolate husband says, I just want her to be remembered as this amazing, amazing comet flashing across the sky for 62 years. Our tomorrows are forever filled with an unimaginable sorrow, he says. Now, I like to think that my heart is broken by the things that break the heart of God, but I wonder if that's true. There was an article in the Washington Post this week with a very disturbing title. The title read, Americans are stubbornly unmoved by death. Is that true? Are Americans stubbornly unmoved by death? Uh, We're moved enough to keep a moment of silence and to build little shrines out of teddy bears and flowers and candles outside the places where those folks died. But are we moved enough to change our behavior? Sometimes you wonder if to Americans their guns and their masklessness are more important to them than their neighbors. Sandy Hook Elementary School is 30 miles up the road from Greenwich, Connecticut. And when in December of 2012, 20 first graders were mowed down there, everybody in Connecticut said, if the laws don't change now, they never will. And they didn't. Will they ever And so probably the best dolorifuge is to take your dolor and to make something meaningful about it so that the dolor doesn't visit somebody else later on. Turn your dolor into action. Speaking of which, I heard about a 41-year-old Philadelphia woman named Bobby Floyd. Bobby and her husband have two sons, 8 and 13, but they'd often talked about fostering children in their marriage, in their home. But then Bobby's husband died young and unexpectedly in a motorcycle accident, and Bobby thought her dream of fostering children had died with him. But then, on the second anniversary of her husband's death, second anniversary, a social worker calls her out of the blue and says, we have these two sisters who need a home. Will you take them? Bobby thought for a minute. She was so lonely and so sad. She said, what the heck? I'll take these kids. But then a few days later, when the social worker turned up on Bobby's doorstep with what was supposed to be two kids, there turns out to be three. These two sisters have a brother, nine years old, who needs a home too. Bobby says yes again. A year later, it turns out these three siblings have three more siblings who also need homes. One of them had been in nine foster homes before the age of 17. And so Bobby says yes again. And so now Bobby is the single mother of eight children, two biologicals and six fosters. Five, six, seven, nine, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fifteen, and seventeen. She doesn't live in a mansion. She just says we threw up some bunk beds and some lofts and we've become a well-oiled machine. We're gliding and grooving through the kitchen. That initial call about those two sisters, you see, came on the second anniversary of her husband's death. She was so sad and so lonely and she said to herself, it felt like he was telling me, take these kids, get busy, stop crying. 
And now I don't have time to cry. All I do is laugh and play and yell all day and then I get up and do it again. Six extra kids to love is about the best Delorefuge I've ever heard of. Over and over again this past year, we have faced dolorous situations, large and small. We can't raise the dead like Jesus, but we can go to war with death like He did, and we can accomplish tiny resurrections wherever we are and wherever we go. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.